Hello and welcome to the Vorthos cast. I'm Jayanelli, and I am buying an Is It Guild kit to use the lands for my commander deck. I'm Lorelei Weissel, and I am also buying an Is It Guild kit to use the basics for my Is It Commander deck. And I'm Brian Dawes, and I also am buying the Is It Guild deck to put lands into my commander deck. First thing we should mention is that by the time you're listening to this, these guild kit decks are out. Everything we know about them so far, they are awesome. So I'm very excited for them. The lands are a huge boon for Commander. It's the exact kind of product that's very well done and that will be hopefully received very well as the annex product for Guilds of Ravnica. Yeah, we've been hyping these. They are very exciting. Gavin Verhey, who helped design them, wrote a whole article about them last week. We'll link to, so if you are interested in how some products are designed, then go check that out. It's interesting to me how they're designing these Annex products, but this isn't a product design podcast, so let's move on to the next bit of news. Ravnica Weekend is something that was announced. It's this new style of event called Magic Weekend. The first one for Guilds of Ravnica is going to happen this weekend, if you're listening to this cast the week it comes out, from November 9th to the 11th. It is a flavorful in-store event with casual draft, guild kit battles, Ravnica D&D, with prizes that include things like foil versions of these guild kit basics, which are going to be worth money, and 11 by 14 prints of such notable characters as that one Demir guy with the headset. Yeah, it's the, uh, the prints are the booster pack arts from the five guilds. This whole event is the replacement for the, what are they called now, store championships, which were the replacements for game day. So it's it's that whole idea where we have a big in-store event to celebrate a set. I think the drafts are like four booster packs of guilds instead of the normal three, so you can get like really powerful guild decks, which sounds awesome. This is, as far as we know, the only way to get these foil basics. They are not going to be very common in the wild. And if you like fancy schmancy basic lands for your commander deck that are even fancier than other fancy schmancy basic lands, these are the ones to get. This weekend, I think, is their test. It must have come up a little too late in the process to do too much development for. But for the Ravnica Allegiance Ravnica Weekend, which is in February, there are going to be more guild kit battles, more D&D, but the prizes include foil full art rares, which sounds awesome. If you are a fan of the commanders that are going to be coming out in that set, my hope is that they've got some nice commander versions coming out for that. You're going to get a playmat at that one, and more guild prints and foil guild lands. So this is pretty cool. The reason I brought this up and the reason I really like it is it's an event that's much more geared towards getting Vorthos into the store. You know, playing D&D, playing more casual drafts, you know, playing with the guild kits in not quite as competitive environment, more of a fun casual environment. And that's the kind of thing that I like a lot better for playing Magic. This was also explained in an article last week, so we'll link to that also. But... Magic Weekend is going to be a flexible thing. These two events are different because they're intentionally different, and they're going to be less structured than the game days or store championships were, so that they have the flexibility to do cool specific things depending on what the set is. 
And this first one for Guilds of Ravnica this weekend was very specifically aimed more towards the Vorthos audience, which is why we like we're getting we can win prints. Eleven by fourteen is a good sized print to hang on a wall. This past weekend, the Broken Pack would have been on Saturday at one p.m. It is a lot of fun to watch. Let me add to that. So I finally started listening to it. It's hard for me to sit down and actually watch a Twitch video, especially one that lasts for a few hours. But I've started to listen to it during my commutes, and it's a lot of fun. It only took me forever to figure out how to make Twitch audio only so that I didn't kill my data. So let's move on to listener questions. Our first question comes from at MTG Deck Check on Twitter. They ask, are the Metathrans still alive? And the answer is, Lorelai? Nope. Urza basically designed them to be cannon fodder for the war with Phyrexia. He was literally invested so little in their lives that he made boarding ships for them that were basically just big frisbees with places for people to stand that he flung at Phyrexian ships. (laughs) And then they would get off and invade the Phyrexian ship. And like half of them would be killed in this, but whatever. You know, they're just Metathran. The fact that we haven't seen any still around since the invasion is a pretty good indication that they they probably are not, there aren't any still alive. There definitely aren't any of that generation still alive, and I'm pretty sure they were engineered, kind of like the dinosaurs of Jurassic Park, to not be able to reproduce. That and they were all involved with all the battlefields all over the invasion. So when Yawgmoth's Death Cloud kind of went off, they were probably the first people to go, which is unfortunate, because I actually liked old Agnate and Thaddeus' storyline, and still hoping for a card for both and or either of them. But yeah, they're most likely very, very dead. Our next question comes from at Thraben Valiant, referring to the art for the card Profane Memento. Is this a certain angel or just a generic one? That's just a reference to a a generic angel. It's a generic angel skull. We see it again in Dominaria with the card Blood Tallow Candle. The reference in Dominaria does confirm that it's a Saren angel. The profane part is that this was a holy angel of the Church of Sera, whose skull is now transformed into an arcane cult artifact. But it's not a specific character or anything. It's just a generic angel skull, and I'm sure groups like the Cabal have artisans that will make these when they can find them. Our next question comes from at Heavenly Evan. Heavenly Evan asks, does everyone in the multiverse speak the same language, or do planeswalkers have the ability to understand all languages, or neither, or both? I completely get the confusion for this because it's not something that's really actively addressed, at least anymore. There are a few levels to this. There are potential in-lore explanations. There are real-world storytelling explanations. Let's start with that. Namely, that language barriers to common languages are not really a useful storytelling tool when there's a new world every single set. And we need to spend stories doing things other than taking three months to learn the new language. Kind of like having different calendars on every plane, it starts to become more burdensome and a hindrance to good storytelling when moving between worlds like this. The IP that I want to reference here is Stargate, specifically Stargate SG-1, which in the first season did keep 
you know, these diaspora of humans each had their own languages from the cultures they came from. And Daniel had to translate every single episode and was most of the time the only person who could communicate. And they dropped that pretty quickly because it became a huge barrier to the kinds of stories they could actually tell. They didn't really acknowledge when they dropped it either. That said, in a multiverse where godlike planeswalkers once dominated and ruled as mad gods everywhere, language is going to be a tricky subject. (laughs) Who's to say, you know, a thousand years ago, there wasn't some planeswalker spreading their common language to as many planes as possible, or casting some sort of spell to make common languages easily understood. That sounds like something Azor would do. Yes, you must all speak my language just as well as I do. Therefore, let it be so. And you know, a lot of magic is based around language. So that is a good reason for cultures in the multiverse to have either similar languages to one another or on their own planes for languages not to evolve very much because language is how you do magic in some cases. I will also note that in canon, language spells are pretty simple and easy. In the old novels, it was kind of a thing where it was mentioned like offhand once or twice. Someone mentioned, you know, oh, well, I'll just cast a spell to let me understand what they're saying. That doesn't always work because in a narrative, you sometimes do want there to be languages that someone doesn't necessarily speak or that the audience can't understand. For instance, like Phyrexian. In both cases, you don't want the audience understanding Phyrexian, and you don't want the characters understanding Phyrexian as they're trying to delve into just what happened to the Thran. We just saw this in Chronicle of Bolas for Core 2019, which takes place on Tarkir, where there's a lot of interactions between dragonkind and the humanoids, where the dragons sometimes can speak humanoid languages but don't like to, or in the case of Ojutai, just like don't speak it because they don't want to, because Draconic is a more nuanced and higher language to them. So, like, Ojutai always has an interpreter. If you have all these different languages, you end up spending so much narrative time trying to deal with all these different languages. And that can work in some IPs. So my comparison is going to be Lord of the Rings here. Tolkien is able to construct a world with multiple languages where those languages being different and different characters having different knowledge of those languages is important because he's writing a ton of content in a single contained world. Once he expands through The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, and The Cimmerillion, he's built a single world with all these languages where they all interact together in a single space. So you don't have to do the language hoops more than once because the languages are consistent. The problem with magic is that if we're now potentially visiting three whole planes a year, you can only have your characters have to learn new languages so often before it becomes repetitive. Or if you're going to have them all happen to know a translation spell, it starts to become contrived and useless to have them, oh, The first part of every story is them using a translation spell. There's just so much work that goes into language in story, and it's just so burdensome. And it's cool when some worlds can do it, but it is not the kind of thing that magic really ever needs to deal with or should deal with. 
because as more and more worlds are created, as more and more species and more and more cultures are designed and developed, it's too bulky and burdensome, and like people just need to know what's going on in your story. So our next question comes from at Jason Vorthos. Jason's question is, since the start of MTG Story on the website, what was your favorite story slash author and why? Let's start with Brian. Huh, that's a good question. My favorite story, the first one that comes to mind, is probably The Lithiomancer. I really like how it set Nahiri up and it was a big reveal because at the time we didn't really know much about her. We knew that the Lithomancer existed, but we didn't know anything else about them. Correct. She's a character that I really like and would love to see more of, but obviously it's not that time yet. But I've really liked Nahiri and her character, even though like I'm all a, I'm all about Team Nahiri and Team Soren staying that wall. But you know that that's that's another story. I enjoyed that story, and realistically, it might be recency bias, but I've also liked all of the stories from Guilds of Ravnica. Um, Nikki Drayden, I've harped on it the last couple weeks but she's knocked the story out of the park and i've been really impressed with them as well so it's a kind of crappy answer for your question because i I can't really pick one but those are the ones that come to mind right off the top of my head what about you lorelei you can't ask me questions like this we only have so much time on this podcast and i'm (laughs) bad at making decisions (laughs) cop out like me do it you didn't cop out you gave a real answer I think individually, the story that impacted me the most on a personal level was Yeheni's penultimate party at the end of Ether Revolt that Allison Lors wrote. I had been having a not great day emotionally when that story came out. And just reading the positivity and the optimism and the friendship in that story murdered my sadness immediately. I am not a person who cries at a lot of media, and this so far is the only piece of like written fiction that has ever made me cry. The story was so good, and it was serendipitously the exact thing I needed to read that day. So I appreciate that very much. But I also really, really liked Chronicle of Bolas. Kate Elliott's care and dedication to the structure of the story and the parallels and the way she wove the theme through pretty much every freaking sentence was just excellent craftsmanship regardless of the story content itself. And then the story itself, she brought so many good ideas. The Bolas and Ugin being literal twin brothers was was something she had brought to the table and it, it just works. It's so hard for people within Wizards to be able to pick up on vague story hooks and pay them off in such effectively powerful ways. Like, we've known Ugin and Bolas were rivals, and they were very much designed to be the antithesis of each other. Antitheses? Antitheses. Plurals. Kate bringing that brother relationship to them and the twin dynamic, and feeding that through Naiva and Baisha, and the pregnant mother imagery that was woven throughout, the sense of truth and lies, and storytelling, and ancestry, and the future. All of it just worked so good together. 
every moment of every one of those stories was just like drinking the richest, most flavorful, thick, malted milkshake of goodness and flavor and delicious dessert yumminess. Chronicle of Bolas is just one of the best pieces of magic fiction I have ever read. I've read stuff from pretty much every era by this point. Not all of it, but I have seen smatterings of it from all over the years. It, it's the best. It's it's hard to top. And there's just been so much good web fiction lately. And, and I don't even know what else I can say that I didn't gush about on our podcast episodes when Chronicle of Bolas was happening. There's just so much awesome stuff, and those stories really emphasize what I love about being a Vorthos. It's the sense of mythic history, the sense of petty argument between godlike beings, the regular people plain-bound, stuck in the middle of this craziness that happens through the Blind Eternities. Just every piece of those stories just resonated with me in a very fulfilling way that's a great answer and you know what i i have to agree like i feel like magic story has just done an excellent job the last couple of years jay i'll tell you one from just a general vorthos point of view release by chris latoyle and i'm sorry if i mispronounced that is probably one of my favorite magic stories ever because it balances so many different things going on there. I am not quite the art connoisseur that Lorelai is, but for this one, it balanced, you know, a Johnny's pathos. It balanced a frame story that brought in Tamio, of all people. It really made me care about this little rat folk from a plot event that happened, you know, like a decade before in real time and three years before that story in universe. And it also organically dropped all the major timeline milestones you need to kind of map out where everything takes place over the last three or four years in the story. With all of those elements combined, I really liked it. It was a very masterful story to bring all of those things together and kind of set the scene for... Kaladesh for people who didn't understand why Tezzeret was a bad guy or why we cared about Tezzeret. I will also say that Martha Wells' backstory on Teferi was really, really excellent too. That one really hit me as he went from the ancient wizard who had lost his godlike power to doting father in the span of a single story and how that transformation happened. And kind of how it fits seamlessly into Teferi's character arc there, I really loved. But that may just be me as a parent really latching on to <laughs> stories of doting fathers. That was the, I believe, the fourth story in Dalmanaria, the story with Quende. And when we saw Oath of Teferi, I was disappointed because Teferi's awful. Or he was awful. And I said, look, if you're going to get Teferi in the Gatewatch and make me like Teferi, here are the things that are going to need to happen with him as a character. And those things all happened, and they all happened in, like, one really, really good story. Martha crushed that story. You didn't have to know who Teferi was before any of this for that story to make sense. 
you didn't have to know much about anything in magic for that story to make sense. It just very quickly conveyed who Teferi was, why he felt like crap, why he changed, and how good his life has been since. And all this action drama between him and Quendi and this whole sandstorm and the awesome meet-cute with Sabira, it was very good. See, this is this is a hard question because we've had a lot of really excellent magic fiction the last couple years by writers both inside Wizards and outside Wizards. It's just exciting to be of Orthos right now, I think, in general. The quality of the story is has definitely been at an all-time high in the last few years. Yeah, this isn't Quest for Karn. Yeah, it, with accepting a handful of novels, because you all know I love those old novels, but from a pure quality perspective, most of them were one to two novels worth of plot stretched out across three novels. You know, while it makes for a great overall story, it ends up coming off a little padded. And these very focused short stories are often... They're much better paced. And that's something that even Wizards had to learn. I mean, we look back at Battle for Zendikar, and, and that block was bloated in terms of story content. There were a lot of stories that should have just not been published, and they would have went a lot smoother. But Wizards learned and adapted, and the creative team at the time who was writing the stories kind of figured out where stories needed to be. Like, I know there was a bunch of outcry from the community when Rivals of Ixalan only had five stories. And I'm sitting here, and we eventually did get broken up into six, but I'm sitting here like, look, like, you don't need... 10 episodes to tell a story if your story is good and tight and is only going to take five or six episodes. And that's ended up what happened. Like, like we ended up getting exactly as much story as the story needed to be told, which is a weird nebulous writing target and is hard to hit. Again, Allison crushed the Ixalan block story and Rivals of Ixalan in particular spent exactly as much time as it needed to finish out that block. And now we're on a whole new paradigm anyway, and it's cool. We've gotten cool stuff. We've gotten new stuff, interesting stuff. Speaking of new, interesting, and bizarre, let's talk about Concepts and Legends. So this is the focus of our episode today, because there was no magic story last week. For no reason there was no magic story. And do more than announce it on a stream two weeks prior. Put it in an article somewhere. Put the dates back on the widget, please, wizards. You did that for the Vivian Reed story. Each episode had its publication date on its little tile in the widget, and then that disappeared for Guilds of Ravnica. That needs to happen all the time so that anybody who looks at it knows when the stories are taking place. We had a whole bunch of people surprised that there wasn't a story last week, and we talked about this already. Y'all gotta keep doing it. I think that'll do for that. <laughs> uh, that, that, that. That went off on a, a little bit of a tangent there. But yeah, Concepts and Legends. New art book. <laughs> Excellent segue back to the art book. I'm very smooth. The first... <laughs> so... The... I'm sorry. I broke Jay. That, that, you did, you did. That, that last time, very smooth, just killed me. So, 
Concepts and Legends, the first thing I need to tell all of you about this book is that it is not an art book like the art books we've been getting since Zendikar. It's in a different kind of packaging, it's designed differently, it's visually different. It is the Concepts and Legends book. It is not the Art of Magic the Gathering dash whatever plain book. And what I mean by that is the Art of Magic the Gathering books up until now have essentially been supersized planeswalker guides that we used to get on the mothership. And they've kind of been like D&D books, which was intentional because James Wyatt writes all these art books. Right. They're almost source books. Concepts and Legends is more like a traditional art book that you would see from another IP. It's a pretty standard coffee table art book with a lot of pictures and a few supplemental captions and, and informational explanations at the beginning of chapters. But it's, it's really focused on the art and the concept art in particular, most of which we have not seen before. So that was really awesome. Yeah, so I would say it has about half to a quarter of the normal word count we've gotten used to these. So if you're looking to buy something that's like the other art books, just know that this isn't. That doesn't mean it's not a worthwhile purchase, but it's not going to be the same thing. If you want to look at pictures that nobody outside Wizards has seen before, holy crap, is this book the one for you? It's got a lot of interesting stuff in there. So it is the, as the title might give away, it is the concept art book, which is why we haven't seen a lot of the art in here before. We divide it into planes, creatures, legends, and then they do some deeper dives into various concepts, like they have, from beginning to end, the concepting for Vivian Reed, who at one point was just Green Arrow. <laughs> we'll go into some pros and cons in a minute, but because this is a lore podcast, I thought I'd talk about the few new tidbits or things you might not have already known that were in this book. There were a couple things just mentioned casually along the way that either were suspected and confirmed or were in Test of Metal and we finally have another source for it and don't have to rely on Test of Metal. God damn Test of Metal. All right, we'll get to that one. So there was only one error in it, and it was a very minor error in that there was a caption that referred to a completed as in Frexianized, completed goblin concept art as a completed mirror, which the, it, they weren't. That, that one's not a big deal, though. But so here's some of the lore download we got. The first thing is, and I, wasn't, I didn't know this already, someone who's a big fan of Lorwyn might know better, but I couldn't find any references for it, outside of the novels at least. The Great Aurora on Lorwyn, the natural cycle for that was every 300 years. The one that happened during the Lorwyn set happened early because of the mending, but I'm not sure that we knew that it was a 300-year cycle between these day and night. That was pretty interesting to me. We also learned that Baron Sengir was from Dominaria. So I think we can mention here, finally, we've avoided saying it, but when we met Pete Venters at GP Seattle, Pete told us one of the original ideas for Baron Sengir is that he was from... Rabia, not from Dominaria, but I think Dominaria makes the most sense for Sengir, just because there's so much of his bloodline there already, that for him to have been kind of a casual visitor, and for vampires to catch on as they did, it doesn't really make as much sense. So the point of Rabia 
is that there are a thousand and one reflections. All the reflections are slightly different. So when we were talking to Pete, he describes one of them as the kind of nightmare Arabia, where it's always nighttime and everyone's evil and there's just monsters everywhere. There was an idea that Baron Sengir was a vampire from this nightmare reflection of Arabia, which in our hierarchy of canon doesn't matter anymore because this art book says he's from Dominaria. Which makes sense because Sengir is not an Arabian name at all. Yeah, it's a cool detail, and we know Sengir was a regular companion of Planeswalkers, which is something that was reaffirmed in this book as well. Planeswalkers, at the time, before the Mending, could take other people with them throughout the multiverse. It happens a bunch of times in a bunch of old stories, and Baron Sengir is someone who had grown so powerful in Dominaria, a world that had frequent Planeswalker visitors anyway, that they kind of toted him around because he was a good ally to have. And then he gets abandoned on Ogratha, which sucks, because that plane sucks. Of all the planes to live on, the one that is barely alive because they poked a hole in the Blind Eternities to get mana because the plane is literally dead after, like, eons of brutal Planeswalker Wars, not a good place to live. And hopefully Sengir got off there and walked through the Dwarven Gate, and hopefully one day we can learn where he went and where the Dwarven Gate goes. The next piece we learned that is that Crucius, who is the Sphinx responsible for creating Ethereum on Esper, he is in fact a planeswalker who is missing from Alara, and he was also Shroom's consort. The Planeswalker status had only been kind of, I believe, hinted at. I don't think it was ever actually confirmed in the Planeswalker's Guide to Alara, which was a paperback book. You're not going to be able to Google it and find it online, but you can find the relevant Esper piece, which we can link to. So that was pretty cool because in Test of Metal, it had confirmed he was a Planeswalker, but that he was essentially an Ethereum statue in this little pocket dimension, which is as... Dumb and crazy as it sounds. Test of Metal is the dumb and crazy magic novel, so it fits. Which is also why we like things being confirmed outside of it, because then we don't have to tell people that parts of Test of Metal are technically canon. They have been poking holes in pieces of the canon for Test of Metal for a long time now, so this is just yet another hole. So the next thing we learned, and... I'm not positive if it was in one of the Planeswalkers' guide, but that souls in Theros's underworld can become demons. That was something I wanted to highlight anyway, because it sounds pretty cool. There are a few examples of humans or mortals becoming demons or angels, so if you want to know where you might get a demon Planeswalker, another demon Planeswalker from, something like this. Well, not like this, because the souls have to be dead first. Zenigos is going to be a demon, and Elsbeth is going to be the first angel planeswalker. Calling my shot. The next little piece we learned is that mortals on Zendikar can be transformed into demons, losing all resemblance to their past form. That was interesting as well. And as a part of that, I was not sure if this was a new piece of lore, like a retcon, if it was a continuity error or what, but the art book does mention that Obnixilus was transformed into a demon by his own evil. So I don't know if maybe that was not quite literal and that his his evil was part of what transformed him when he tried to get at the chain veil, but 
our understanding is that Obnixilus was transformed into a demon by the chain veil. Because that's what past stories have said. And then we saw the same transformation happening to Garrick. Right. This is all mostly from the Duels of the Planeswalker 2015. This is a detail in the art book that I think is probably just incorrect and not consistent with the rest of canon because doesn't make sense with the established story and like the completed mirror miscaption. This might just be something that kind of wiggled through editing until Ob comes back and we get more story on the chain veil and Ob. I'm going to assume that the correct canon is that he was cursed by the chain veil. Because he wanted that curse gone, and if he was transformed into a demon by his own evil, I don't think he would have gone to Zendikar to try and rid himself of a curse that came from himself anyway that would probably just recurse him. That doesn't make any sense. It makes more sense that he was cursed by the chain veil and in his anger went to Zendikar to try and fix it. The next little bit I wanted to talk about is in the original Planeswalker's Guide to Alara that I mentioned earlier, it mentioned that people on Bant believe that the righteous can be transformed after death into angels. The art book confirms that and says that the angels on Bant are transmuted souls of the righteous. That is typically the like highest castes and most holy castes of the Church of Asha there, which I don't really think has a has quite that organized a name. And that they also dwell in the Cathedral of Bliss, which I did not know was a thing before this. The last new, quote-unquote, new bit of lore here. That's some big quotes there around new. One of the oldest bits of magic lore that was confirmed here. But this is a saga. <laughs> is that worms on Dominaria, it was very specific to say Dominaria, are confirmed to be descended from defeated dragons. So this is a whole thing. I think when we talked about Elder Dragons before I went into this, I've written a couple articles on this. Biren Bohr has written an article on this. Sam Keeper has written an article on this. And how this was kind of just fanon for a very long time. It was in background documents, and it was a rejected flavor text for Legends that this was a thing, but it kind of gotten picked up into the Vorthos zeitgeist, and we never let it go from then, and it has wormed its way back into, <laughs> no pun intended. Absolutely no pun intended, because the wormed you're using is the W-O-R-M. It's a totally different word, even though they share the same etymological root. Oh, pun intended. Go with it. Let's go. So let's talk about the pros and cons of this book. And Lorelai, let me list off what I liked, and then yep. if you want to add to that, go for it. So the pros, the included art prints are these double-sided iconic artworks of Sarah Angel, Lanawar Elves, Urborg, and the Weatherlight, the older versions and newer versions. So like the Dominaria version of the art for all of those was on here, and then whatever the best earlier version are on the other side of these prints. These are gorgeous, and I really like them. So that was a very nice inclusion with this. They're a good size to frame. Yeah, they're 8.5 by 11, so they're like normal paper size, but that means you're not paying out the wazoo for a large frame. And they will look good on your wall. My only sadness is that I have to pick just one of the arts unless I buy another concept art book, because they're double-sided. There are a lot of cool new concept art 
pieces in there that we have just never seen before because there's so much that Wizards develops that just never sees the light of day. It was very cool to see what was in there. We had already posted some of the Vivian Reed and Lord Windgrace concept art, but there's more in there where that came from. Maybe not of specific characters, but of like worlds and creatures and things. And then we just got into it here, but there's some neat behind the scenes information, like how the development for Vivian Reed went, what went into the development of Windgrace. The concept art is way different than he ended up, and that's because that was from before Magic had kind of settled on what their cat folk are going to look like. And so it was this weird kind of almost monkey cat creature. The Windgrace concept art I'm putting under cons because I had to look at this really weird anthropomorphic <laughs> cat person art. It was weird. It's really uncanny. I can't unsee it. And that's unfortunate. <laughs> There's lots of different iterations on Windgrace's head, especially. And some of the faces just... I don't even know how to describe how unsettling it is. It's not like looking at characters from the Broadway show Cats. It's not like looking at traditional furry art that you'll find on the internet nowadays. It's not like looking at the current magic designs for Catfolk. It is literal nightmare fuel, some of those, which is probably why they didn't use them. Any other pros you want to add, Lorelai, before we move on? A thing I like it did in the creatures section when it's talking, it breaks stuff down by colors and then talks about like creatures in those colors, starting with the big iconic creature species. So, so the angels, the sphinxes, the demons, the dragons, and the hydras. Like one of the things they do in the dragon section is they produce concept art from like every iteration of dragons throughout magic's history so it gives you a very quick look at how dragon design is differentiated from plane to plane and that's something they emphasize both in the written sections in the book and in some of the little captions you get to get a very quick idea of how magic art has developed and reimagined its own species throughout the years for different worlds and for sometimes totally different colors in the game and that is really cool that's something i i've really enjoyed i've written a couple blog posts over the years about the different dragons the different cats the different vampires that we see throughout the multiverse so seeing something like that that i was already interested in produced in this book was useful and interesting and exciting and provides a good baseline for exploration. Those kinds of sections and the work this book does gives you a great foundation of a general overview of what magic art and what magic worlds and creatures look like. And you can build on that by looking at the actual printed cards over the sets and the blocks and the years and the planes and the creatures. Literally tens of thousands of cards. It's a very good coffee table book in that you don't have to know a damn thing about magic to understand that book. If you want to introduce, like, your clueless parents to magic, show them this book and it will very quickly give them idea of what magic is like, what magic's visual design is. If you are an artist looking to work for Wizards of the Coast as a freelancer and do art for magic, this book gives you 
a lot of ideas of the kinds of concept designs and the kind of work that Wizards is looking for and the kinds of styles that they have. There is some, this, all the art in the book is, it's mostly concept art. There are some finished pieces from throughout Magic history in there as well. So like, it just gives a good overview of what Magic is about stylistically and how the world building works philosophically. And I think that's really the strength of this book. Concept, not just in terms of concept art, but concept and legends in terms of ideas and world building. You made me think of something, and I was just going to double check before I said this out loud, that James Wyatt had posted a photo of his bookshelf, which has the eight art books he's worked on now, including Ravnica on the farthest right, and his position for this book is before the Zendikar art book, which I think is apt because it really is kind of a introduction to magic lore book more so than anything else when it comes to the lore. And so if you're someone dipping your toes or you have a friend who's dipping in their toes and wants to know more about the world building, this is a good starting point. The book begins with a series, just a couple pages on each of the major planes in the multiverse. And we also have the Art of Magic the Gathering books about many of these planes. If you're introducing someone to the world building and visual language of magic, this book can show them the planes. And if they're interested in a plane, you now have a whole other art book you can say. And like, you want to really get into it? Read this now. Just slam it on the table in front of them. Here's your homework, nerd. Get to it. Pretty much. So let's talk about the not-so-great things about this book. The thing that bothered me the most is, for an art book, it featured some very inexplicably low-resolution artwork stretched, like, way beyond where it should have. Like, I should not be able to see the pixelation at a glance in the artwork that you're showing off in an art book. Now, I know some of this is because a lot of this art just doesn't exist in the same kind of higher resolution that we typically use today, but we had things like the Wrath Cycle book that had plenty of artwork that was not all pixelated and messed up. But there are a few inexplicable half-page artworks or even splash pages across, you know, two pages that just are not the kind of resolution I would expect from a book like this. It looks like they maybe grabbed the wrong file and dropped it in. That's really unlikely. Yeah, I, I, but that's, what, that's kind of what it looks like, you know? And so I wonder why they didn't just use higher resolution art from the same plane, even if it means it's not the concept art, if they don't have it at the right resolution. It just, that part I didn't like at all. There's also, we mentioned before, less lore than any other magic art book, including the Wrath Cycle book. For those of you who don't know what that is, I mentioned it already. 20 years ago, when the Weatherlight story was just getting started, they released the Art of Magic the Gathering Wrath Cycle, which was all about kind of the Tempest block, had a lot of information on the backgrounds of the Weatherlight characters, a lot of concept art, just like this book, but it also had a lot more lore information, even in just that Wrath Cycle book, which is a much thinner book as well. Overall, I'd say because of that lower res art book and the the layouts not being quite as nice as the the other art books we've seen from Viz, it kind of lacks the overall polish that we have gotten used to from these Viz art books. 
from a layout point of view. It's not something that's a complete turnoff, but it definitely is not at the same quality level internal to the book. The outside is very, very nice. It comes sleeved in this uh, cardboard container. It's a very gorgeous kind of dark gray black with silver mana symbols and concept and legends on it. So that part looks gorgeous, but the interior layouts could could have used some more work. Lorelai, cons? Uh, yeah, there was concept art of all five cons from Cons of Tarkir that was in there, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Actually, it might have been finished artwork. It was really good. Those were really, really good. I'm really glad you brought those up because I think we've seen one of them before. But the finished concept art of these Tarkir cons was really gorgeous. I think only one of them, Anafenza, is the only one that looks like it made it like directly to the card. I I, I think the Sidisi one was Sultai Ascendancy's art. I'll have to double check. Well, regardless, there's a lot of really great art in there. They did a similar page with the Five Dragon Lords. There were four little sections, so they did the art prints that they had for Sarah Angel, Lenor Els, Urborg, and the Wellalite. They did have little sections interspersed throughout the book where they talked about like reimagining the Church of Sarah, uh, reimagining Lanawar, rebuilding the Weatherlight. Like, I, I didn't know or didn't remember that they built an entire 3D model for the new Weatherlight when they were working on Dominaria. That's really spicy. That was really cool as well, so that all of the artists, as they were working on it, could pull it up, uh, rotate it around, to so that you got a consistent Weatherlight in every piece of art. They did the same thing we learned for the 10th District in Guilds of Ravnica, which is why. The district looks so consistent, and you can look at the piece of art and see other landmarks, and then when you're at the viewpoints of those other landmarks, you can see what you were looking at before, and it all lines up very accurately, and it's not something that the original Ravnica had. Yeah, I'm excited for the Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica and see what kind of juicy art we have along with the map. I want to see the map so bad. Maps. (laughs) I guess another thing I really just said was a con, so kind of bungled that part and threw some more pros on. <laughs> well, it's always good to end on a high note, right? I enjoyed the book. There's like some of those production problems and a couple little questionable pieces of information, but like we mentioned in our Hierarchy of Canon episode, our books are pretty low on that. I'm not going to look to a book like this for the rigid actual interpretations of Magic's story. These are light overviews, especially this book in particular. But if you're looking for something that is very nice to look at and provides you with a basic overview of what magic is about, this book is fantastic. It's not the deep dives into specific planes and histories like the other Art of Magic the Gathering books are, but it's enjoyable and I'm glad I have it and I'm glad they made it. So final thoughts. What I would say is that if you are as big of a magic nerd and lore fan as we are, it's definitely worth it. It looks nice on your shelf at the very least, (laughs) and it is a good coffee table book like Lorelai mentioned before. This is the one to get if you're more casually interested. You don't necessarily want to shell out for all of the other art books. This might be a good broad art book for you to get 
if you are prioritizing getting either this or the Ravnica art book, I would probably say just wait for the Ravnica art book if you are really more into the deep dives. Lorelai? So my final thought is that ending a game of Commander by cloning your Triskelion and eating a Lord of Extinction with your Mimeoplasm is still a legitimate strategy. I have now done it twice in the past week-ish, both times through a Gisela Blade of Gold Knight, so doubling damage to all my other opponents, and then being able to ping the Gisela and Gisela's owner, because each instance is just one damage, which gets halved to five and rounded back up to one, so it actually doesn't stop the pinging from Triskelion. Like, it's a thing. The Mimeoplasm does gross stuff. I love that card. I love that deck. Commander's a great format. None of that is Vorthosi but I don't care. Magic's great. I've played a lot of Commander since moving. It's the best format. I love Magic. Go, Brian. My final thought is that I cannot wait until Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica is released. Just one short week to, for that to happen, but um, really, I can't wait to possibly DM some games with it, or play some games with it, or just to look at, see what all the little details about Ravnica that aren't readily available right now that will be sure to be in the guide for people to consume so that they can build a world to play D&D in. So that's my final thought. We're still trying to figure out what we're going to do with our Vorthos Cast Discord server in terms of maybe running some one-shots on there. Once we figure that out, if you would like to hop on our server and do some Ravnica D&D stuff or just chat with other Vorthoses, us included, and have a good time, building a magic community full of cool people. You can visit patreon.com slash thevorthoscast and donate to support our show. Everyone who donates gets access to that Discord community and helps keep this show running so that we can keep saying cool things that you get to listen to once a week. Thank you all for listening. This has been the Vorthoscast.